Alright, we're going to begin. It's a uh, quarter till. So, let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful, so grateful for your self-existence that you always were. We can't wrap our minds around that at all. But uh, somehow, strangely, is comforting. So may we be encouraged by this study of this attribute of yours. And uh, may Jesus be glorified as we honor you by knowing you better. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, in the beginning, it says in my Bible, this amazing statement, in the beginning, God. That's it. <laughs> I mean, just just stop there, put the Bible down, and go, what? <laughs> God was in the beginning. Before there was anything, there was God. And it gives no explanation. And, and philosophers have gone nuts. Some of them probably have really gone nuts. And theologians have a hard time, especially liberals. <laughs> that there was something... In fact, my grandson, you know, it's interesting how God's providence and coincidence. My grandson uh, has been talking, uh, we've been talking about gun control because they're talking about it in school and stuff like that, having these little discussions. He calls me on the phone uh, on a busy day this week. And we're, I'm running out doing a few things, getting ready for this and uh, other stuff. And I'm at a gas station filling up this car. It's loaded. It was, in fact, it was yesterday. Uh, no, it's Saturday. It was Thursday. We had the car loaded. I didn't want to have the gas in it so I could leave Friday morning early and not have to stop and get gas. So I'm at the gas station pumping gas. And as soon as I get done and get ready to leave and head home and, and do some other things, the phone, my cell phone rings. is my grandson. He's 14 years old. He said, Grandpa. I said, what? He said, can you come over here right away? Uh, yeah, Sure. What's the matter? I, I want to talk to you. That, this is unusual. And you know, when, he, when your grandson's saying it like that, you think, I'm in trouble at school or I'm this. I go over there. He wants to understand God. He wants, he says, I don't understand. How could God, how, how could he make anything who made him? There's always got to be something making something else. So where did he come from? I said, he was just always there. He said, that's impossible because everything has to come from something. I said, yeah. So we got in this philosophical discussion because um, he said, I'm not sure I believe in God anymore. He said, I just doesn't make any sense. It's like evolution doesn't totally make sense either because where would the Big Bang had to start from something? So I just gave him this very simple thing that says, obviously, everything comes from something, but something can come from nothing. And can something come from nothing? Nothing can produce something. Can't, I'm, it's even hard to talk, isn't it? Nothing could produce something. Nothing cannot produce something. That's what I'm trying to say. Something cannot come from nothing. He said, that's right. Nothing, could, nothing can could not produce something. I said, so therefore, there had to have been something at the beginning that produced something but didn't need to be produced. So something had to exist with existence in itself. It has to start there. doesn't make anything, any sense any other way. So I said, what do we, we call that something God. Now, evolutionary people say that, that something might have been, been gases that, or particles. I said, but um, you're, you're giving, you're giving uh, eternal personality to inanimate objects when you say that. And then you have to reason from the fact that uh, can something inanimate without personality, without intelligence, make something greater than itself? 
that's impossible to consider as well. You had to have something that's making other things that's greater than what they make. I mean, you get a, a thing of wood and you want to carve it into a little statue and show it to somebody. Um, aren't you greater than what you made? Yeah. So this, this first cause has to be great to make all of this. And she says, well, I'll think about it. You know. I said, well, you have to. Uh, don't rush. Don't feel bad that you're having conflict about what you believe. That's normal. You know, but he said, well, how do you know you're right? Because if we were brought up, I'm getting off on the tangent, which is my problem. <laughs> I won't hold it against you. But if, we, if our family was born in a Muslim country, we'd just be Muslims. And we think we're right. And you think you're right? And so I said, exactly. So how do we know who's right? I said, well, you've got to look at the Bible. And I said, you've got to look at the other holy books that claim they know the truth. And you could read them all if you want to. I don't know how long it'll take you, but I'll tell you this. I have read almost all of them. And uh, none of them make sense except for this one. I mean, I'm telling you, I've read them. <laughs> you read the Hindu book, and it's like uh, the Hobbit story, only it's, wor- it's far out more fantasy than that. It's made-up stuff, and this is real people, real places, you know, that you can archaeologically back up. So, long story short, he's intrigued with this idea of how can there be something that was self-existent, had power within itself to to maintain that existence. The, the Bible just says in the beginning, before you can think of anything else, you human beings are reading this book that was God. Now, if you read the story, he will tell you what g- God did, you know, because uh, he, he told me, uh, my son, grandson says, Grandpa, if I, this is scary, if I were to go in the bedroom right now, in my bedroom, and slit my throat, I'm going, and slit my throat and, and, and then my eyes would close and then it would be dark how do you know there's something after that that you're going someplace else how do anybody know that I said honestly nobody knows nobody can prove it nobody can prove that God made everything nobody I said there's only one way we can find out it's a word called revelation so revelation is knowledge that's given to you as a gift. You can't learn it. You can't figure it out. You can't research it. You can't do anything, you know, by experiment to prove that's true. It's called revelation for that reason. It means God or some force or whatever you want to call it gives it to you and you know. So what if that God that we're talking about, that I believe is God, what if that God who did all of this decided to tell us what he did and why he did it and why he made us. Then we would know straight from that eternal presence why we're here. Other than that, we would have no idea. And if it was just gases, they couldn't write a book. They couldn't do anything. So the only way human beings could know anything at all about origins or why we're here or anything is if whoever started it decided to tell us. You cannot figure it out any way, other way. That's basic philosophy, too, epistemology. So, um, so I left him with that thought in his, in his mind. We went off on some tangents. But, uh, so if that, if that God wrote the book, then this book is the key to understanding everything. And I said, that's why I read it all the time. And he says, uh, so I said, and so if you want to know if there's something... Uh, that a person goes to or is alive after they kill themselves or whatever, it'll be in what this book says. And if this book tells us that there's life after death, there's two places you can go, then this is all we have that can tell us the truth. So it all comes from here. Revelation is here. He said, oh. I said, so you need to read this. You need to read this. And then you can think about it. You know, So... A seity is that quality of God that declares his, um, uh, the fact that he has no origin. 
He always was, is, and shall be. And so there are some words that the theologians use to um, <clears throat> define a seity. One is God is self-existent. <clears throat> Here's some verses. Uh, Genesis 1, 1, which we already looked to, in Revelation 4.11, which is mentioned a few verses for each of these things and, and reason from them and think about them. Uh, and then we'll talk about uh, how that applies to counseling. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God eternally existed, and from his existence he creates everything else, and that's why they're existent. So everything that has been made is dependent upon its existence for God, from God, because he is self-existent, and he's not dependent upon anything else. Say, Now, <clears throat> Everything in creation was brought into existence. Everything in creation owes its existence to something or someone outside of itself. There was a time when everything in creation did not exist at all. Creation's existence comes from a source other than itself. And God's existence does not come from outside of itself. It had no beginning or source. So self-existence is a key Key way to say it, in fact, more people are aware of that word than a seity. Seity is not as common, but that's the official term for this concept. Self-dependent is another way to express, there are slight nuances between the three terms I'm going to give you. Self-dependence, one's focusing more on existence itself. This is the dependence aspect. His being or existence depends rather upon himself. He's dependent upon himself. He depends upon no one or nothing for anything. How can, he be, how can God be dependent upon something or someone that he brought into existence? It's illogical. He is independent of matter, space, time, and motion. Uh, here's some verses. Uh, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. He's not dependent if he were hungry. He's not dependent on anything. He already has everything. He has, he's already he made everything. Say. Another verse, <clears throat> Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That speaks about self-existence as well, self-dependence. Psalm 90, uh, I got Psalm 92, two places. Next one must be 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So he's not dependent on anything for any decisions he makes, whatever. He just does whatever he wants all the time. He's totally independent. Daniel four. At the end of the day at, at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him, who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's self-dependent. He's independent. He's in his own world, you might say. Doing his own thing. And... Uh, the implications are obvious. We have no effect whatsoever on God. That's one of the implications of this attribute. And it's hard for people to grasp when you start making it uh, clear what the attribute means. 
which we'll do more of later. Uh, in regards to matter, he's independent of matter. That means he is spirit, so matter doesn't matter. In other words, he could see through the bush that Adam and Eve hid behind. <laughs> he can walk through doors if he wants to. He can appear out of nowhere from nothing. Manifest himself. Materialize. He, he, he materializes from an invisible world into material world. Anytime he wants to. He doesn't do it very often, obviously. But I mean, matter doesn't matter. He's independent, totally. Space. Since he is everywhere present, which is covered in a different workshop, then space doesn't matter. Distance means nothing to him. If you think of any place, any place, he is fully there. Call it Pluto. Call it the depths of the Red Sea. Call it Alpha Centauri. Call it a, a, a cell in the brain, back of your brain. I don't care what. You just name a place and he's there. Space means nothing. He's independent of space. Time. Well, you know what the Bible says about that. To him, one day is like a thousand years. The future is now to him. These these. The, these things kind of boggle my mind. I love these mental challenges. That what happens uh, next year is already present to him. There's no time to him. We're so time-bound, it's hard to comprehend that. But there's no time to him. He existed before time. He created time. And when he says time is done, it'll be done. And it, yet... There'll still be time, I guess, you know, because it goes on to eternity. And you can't measure it and you can't say, how many years will we be in eternity? How many years have we been there floating around in space, you know, or whatever? And there's no, no way you can't look at a clock. You can't get a calendar and say, okay, it's tomorrow, you know, turn the page. There's no time with him. And everything is now. I, that's why... It's really easy for him to prophesy. <laughs> you know? Because it's today. And he planned it all. And he knows how the, this is all unfolding. And so prophecy is nothing to him. When he says uh, to Isaiah, uh, root out of the stem of Jesse's coming up, you know? And uh, it doesn't happen for 600 years. Well, it just happens like this when he says it, you know. <laughs> it's, it's hard for us to comprehend. He, he's independent of time totally. That, is, that affects us in counseling too. The, he's beyond time. He was there when he started everything and planned everything to its completion. All things and events are already completed to him and are sure to happen as if they have already happened. There's confidence if you believe that in your life. His promises are yeah, yea and amen. That's, that's really encouraging to people who are uh, worried about things. The fact that he's self-dependent and that's independent of time has a great deal to say about uh, what God has promised will come to pass. And motion. I was researching this uh, and I got in over my head. <laughs> because there's a whole thing from Archimedes and uh, Greek thinking <clears throat> about motion and circular motions uh, that uh, create, they think create life. In fact, uh, they were talking about uh, certain forces going in a circular motion that, that doing that recreates itself and keeps itself alive. It's a philosophy of Plato and Socrates and uh, some other people there. And the more I'm reading that, I'm thinking, Whew. you know. And then I thought, and they said, they said they thought there were three basic elements 
in these motions. And as they continued to revolve around each other, whatever these forces were, they couldn't even explain what the forces were. But they believed that um, that kept uh, uh, this being or essence alive of what is a life force behind everything. And I thought, how close to the Trinity can you get without admitting that it's a Trinitarian God? They didn't see that at all. But I thought, man, you know, it's amazing that they say that. And that's what I, that's what I was looking, uh, I googled uh, God and motion just to see what kind of things were coming. It's amazing what I was reading, you know. But, um, so, uh, let's look at motion the way more we think about motion. God cannot be moved by anything. There's no motion from us that can cause an effect in him. He depends only upon himself for all that he is and does. He is the unmoved mover. That's like the first cause argument. There is a mover who moves independently from being moved and pushed. Everything else needs to be moved or pushed. But not him. He moves from his own will. He wasn't moved from outside of himself to create the visible world. You can't tell him a thing he doesn't know. You can't influence him with your perspective or your latest scientific discovery. You can't appeal to his emotions. He is the author of emotions. We are emotional because he made us in this image. We have the same emotions as he does, except one. He doesn't fear a thing. He's not closer to one person more than another, so he wouldn't be biased because he's moved by a certain person who's more holy or more righteous in our eyes than we are. He's not moved by that at all. He's not biased toward your pastor because he's closer to God than you are. I had somebody tell me years ago, uh, Pastor, you should pray because you're closer to God than I am. I think God will hear you. I said, if I'm walking in sin and you're not, he's going to hear you before me. It has nothing to do with a title. Nothing. Nothing. If I'm out of fellowship, my prayers are injured. Same with everybody. I'm no different. The third... uh, way it's described as self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. He has all that he needs within himself to do anything that he wants to do or pleases. John 5, 26, Jesus said himself, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also have life in himself. He has all he needs for life, for essence, for being who he is. And he doesn't profit one bit from our obedience. We do. We're the ones who profit. But not him. He was... This is cool. He was perfectly fine without all the creation for eternity. He was content. He wasn't sitting around saying... Really lonely. Really lonely. We need to have some some stuff, some video games, some people, something. Now the three of them lived in perfect harmony. And it's hard to comprehend. They're sitting around on the couch? No. <laughs> They're spirit. They're everywhere. I love to just let my mind go there. It's better than trying to get high in the 60s. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? Meditating on God is mind-blowing. He didn't begin the creation because he suddenly realized he was bored. He could have continued to exist fully satisfied within himself on into eternity without ever, without everything mentioned from Genesis to Revelation. 
the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So you can see, God is self-existent, self-dependent, self-sufficient, and that's what a seity is. Now, <clears throat> let's let's do some. Uh, well, let's, let me read a couple more things here first. Getting ahead of myself. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? Nothing compares. It's, some of that sounds a little negative, like it's putting us down as we're nothing. You know what I mean? But the fact is, compared to him being independent and in need, we are nothing. We're absolutely nothing. Less than nothing. Couldn't you just stop at nothing, Lord? You're telling us less than nothing? What? How can you be less than nothing? That's right. Yeah. Now, from less than nothing, the evolutionists believe. They make everything out of less than nothing. You know, but um, Exodus 3.14, another powerful verse on the ascent of God. Moses said, um, what's your name? What can I tell them? You know, God Almighty, we know you as that. We know you as other terms defining certain aspects. But do you have a name? You know, because our names mean something. Adam means man of the earth. Eve means mother living. Uh, Abraham. Now, every name in Hebrew basically has a meaning of some sort. What's your name? Isn't that awesome? What is he saying with that name? I am being. I'm, and I am, not I'm going to be or I was. or I'm, I'm existent, self-existent being. That's who I am. I'm the one who is the source of all that is that has meaning, or, or, sorry, everything that has existence. I'm the one that has always had existence. I'm, I'm the first one. That's my name. That's a mind blur. He, when, he, when he mentioned that name to Moses at the burning book, he just wiped out every false god of every pagan tribe around those nations. There wasn't a name that could top that one. Baal, this means Lord. This means Master. Molech, I forget what it means. Uh, there's a bunch of names of the communities around Israel. And Moses wanted to know what his unique... By the way, Allah was one of those names back then. It's a moon god, one of many different gods. Allah is not one god. It's just one of a pantheon of gods of that Middle Eastern culture. And when, when Moses said, what do we call our tribal God? That's the context of the, of the culture. What's the name for our God? That We believe you're greater than the other ones. See, so what is your name? And he says this. <laughs> I can imagine Moses' hair went from being straight to curly. That was it. You know, he was forever changed. I am who I am. He couldn't name or identify himself with anything in creation. Hebrew said, uh, what's your name? Uh, I'm Simon Bar-Jonah. And Bar means son. So Simon, son of Jonah. They didn't have last names back then. So they always had... Simon Bar Jonah, or it was actually Jesus Bar Joseph, whatever, the name of your father. So that who you are is identified with who you're related to, who you're the child of. But 
What's your name, God? There's no bar anything back here. He had to identify himself with himself. That's not, nothing else to identify with. Author of all creation. No relational connection in all of creation for God. I am who I am, independent from everything and everyone. That's what he's saying with that name. It's enough, I think, to make our hearts just gaze in wonder at such a being who is our God. Well, let's uh, think about some implication for counseling. First of all, since God is self-dependent as an attribute of deity, it's obvious then that we are not. Isn't it? I mean, it's an attribute of deity to be independent, self-dependent. So anytime any of us is dependent upon ourselves and not realizing we're in need of others and especially of God, we are malfunctioning in our thinking. <laughs> we're deceived. We are wrong. And, and so there's a, a, a war going on in the fact of human beings wanting to be independent, wanting to not really need anybody. Well, I can get along with that then. I'll be okay. You know, I, I can get along. And they look to themselves as being self-existent. You're going to find that in counselees. Counselees who you'll never counsel because they don't need your help. I'll figure it out. I'll suffer for 8, 10 years, 15 years, but I'll make it. I'll get through. I'll, well, you know, you might get by to some degree. Well, why can't you receive help and get over it quicker? You know, why do you suffer and make other people suffer? Because you are fighting for your own self-dependence. So that is a core issue for counseling. People who believe they're far more self-dependent than they really are and rather than be humble and believe they need some help, hopefully from our perspective, from God, and God using Bible people to help them. Secular people uh, will uh, not want, want help from God, but uh, even Christians have trouble getting help and will suffer. We are created dependent beings dependent upon God for everything including our next breath or our next thought um, John 15.5 I can't remember what that is right now yeah that's a section but I'm trying to think of a specific verse um, it might be it might be that very connection you're you're dependent because, yeah. Yeah, abiding in the vine. Very good. Right. Um, we have needs, uh, not the way Abraham Maslow says. Basic human needs of Abraham Maslow uh, is really fundamentally wrong uh, coming from psychology, but its, re it's reasoning and logic is wrong. Two, I don't have a diagram with me. Uh, it's in our first course we talked about that. But um, the most fundamental needs are listed in 1 Timothy 6. And uh, what the Bible says are basic human needs are food, clothing, and shelter, and there and being content. It doesn't say being married or having uh, other kinds of things or it talks about survival, food, clothing, shelter. And they, you can be content. 
But there is a need also implied in that, Timothy. Because Paul is writing to Christians. The fundamental human need is a relationship with God. Maslow knows nothing of that or promotes nothing like that. Neither did Adler, who had his own chart on needs. Um, Adam and Eve were created with a relationship with God. It was foundational to their existence because their identity was the image of God, which we're getting close to soon here. And so we're dependent upon a relationship with God to be what we're supposed to be. Our primary need is a relationship with God. Jesus uh, confirms these human needs uh, by telling his disciples who uh, were anxious about things. In Matthew 6, uh, during the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and and uh, he, he mentions in the midst of all the possible anxieties his listeners would be dealing with. He narrows it down to things that are essential uh, by saying, why do you worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? In other words, the very things that we depend upon for life itself, that we'll die if we don't have shelter from storms and hurricanes and we don't have food to eat, he said, you shouldn't even worry about that. You know, There's a lot of lesser things that people worry about too. He says, let's strip away all that stuff and let's focus on absolute needs, fundamental needs. And he names the same ones that Paul mentions in Timothy. And the reason why we don't need to be worried about even survival needs is because you have a heavenly father. Right? And Look at how he takes care of the grass and this. And aren't you his children? You know, aren't you worth more than them? So our dependence upon God guarantees that the basic human needs that we have are met. If we have God, God will provide the basic human needs. And would it be nice to have a spouse? Wouldn't it be nice if the spouse you had was a nice spouse? Right? Uh, yeah. But is it a need? It's really not a need. Wouldn't it be nice if uh, uh, you had a car? Is it a need? Really? No. We have a lot of wants and desires that we think are needs. Uh, if God tells us in Genesis, in, uh, I'm a little off here again, but I've got time, I checked. If God tells us in, in Romans that uh, he works everything out for the good, everything means bad, good, everything is used by God to make us more like Christ. That's what it says in verse 29. Romans 8, 28, 29. 29 explains what the good is in, chapter, in verse 28. All things for the good. And then the next verse says, because he foreknew, he predestined you to become image of God. So God uses everything. That means nothing can stop God from helping you become more like his son. So that a good wife will help you. Or a bad wife will help you become more like Christ. A good husband, or a bad husband, or no husband, or five kids, or two kids, or some handicapped kids, or bad neighbors with vicious dogs to keep you awake at night. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's not a need, because God can use anything to make you like Christ. You need to become like Christ, and you need a relationship with God through Christ. So... So in counseling, dependency problems are huge because 
<coughs> Isaiah 56, 53, 6. I was supposed to do that. But I was supposed to be done reading it. Let me see, go backwards. Yep. It says, <clears throat> All we like sheep have gone astray, each one goes his own way, and the Lord laid upon him the inequity or sin of us all. Now, that is right there in the middle of the section of Isaiah 53 where Isaiah is prophesying about the crucifixion where Jesus is on the cross bearing our transgressions. And what, it, what is at the heart of what's on Jesus' back is that phrase that says, uh, all we like, say it again. <clears throat> all, all we like sheep have gone astray. So that's our problem. We go astray. And what is it? Each one goes his own way. That's the sin. That's the heart of all of our sins. Independence. Going our own way. We don't need God. We don't need his commandments. We can decide, it's like, like it says in uh, Joshua, <clears throat> everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's the heart of sin. Can Christians commit that? You know, some people go to churches uh, on Sundays, in good churches, but they go to churches on Sundays because it's their decision. They're going their own way. Because if they don't feel like going on a particular Sunday or the big game is on and they'll be late for the first quarter, then they'll skip church. I mean, you understand, I'm, I'm deciding my own pathway. And when Christianity fits in, it's fine. When it doesn't fit in, I'm going my own way. There's, there's people that look righteous, <laughs> but you don't know what's going on in their heart. We're, we're dependent upon God. We're not supposed to be independent. <clears throat> Only God is self-existent, self-dependent. So dependency problems um, are at the heart of many counselees' problems. <clears throat> now, we've got identity problems. I think you saw that coming. He is a source of our being and identity all identity issues arise from trying to have an identity. Listen carefully. All identity issues arise from trying to have an identity apart from God. That's really profound to think about. When we want our own way, when we're independent from God, we want to be our own man or our own woman, we tend to wrap our identity around some issue important to us. I'm a feminist. That's my real identity. Or I'm a um, sports hero. Or I'm a Hollywood celebrity. Or I'm the best plumber in my union. Or whatever it might be. We have identity things that we wrap ourselves around so we can identify ourselves to other people as certain standouts in this particular area. We... We make our biographical sketches around those things. You know, this is who I am. Who, who are you? Well, I'm uh, Debbie Propri's husband. Yeah. There's a relationship there, or it's a relationship to uh, uh, my father. I'm Joseph Bar Joseph, by the way. <laughs> huh? <laughs> uh, so... We, we identify with certain people or we identify with a certain profession or we identify with a certain talent or skill or whatever. And um, the problem with that, uh, in a sense, it gives a person a little bit understanding of what we do or what we're like. But if we really wrap our identity in those things, we're missing out on the real substance of who we are. Our real identity is wrapped up in God. And when we make that the priority, uh, then we are on the path of becoming like God. See? And if we don't, then we're rebellious of our calling, which is to image God. That's the focus of who we are. That's when real meaning comes into our life. And, and people that have identity problems in counseling, and many more do than we think, 
guess we never even go down that, that line sometimes. Uh, what's the most important thing about who they are to them? Good, solid, straight question to ask. But if it's, uh, I have pride in being a certified counselor. I have pride in being a uh, tool and die maker. I was a tool and die maker before I was a pastor. I used to work for a living, see. <laughs> and then, uh, so, uh, you know, the answer should come out of the Christian naturally, although it takes, you know, some Bible study and growth to come up with the answer. But eventually, every Christian will be able to say, my identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And that God has made me in his image, and I'm still discovering just how I'm supposed to show God with my life, because he lives in me, and he wants to live through me, and that's, that's, that's my heart. That's everything. And part of that is, yeah, I do these other things, but I, I'm doing these other things conscious of the fact that it's God in me doing this, these things, and I want to do them the way Jesus himself would be doing it if he were me. See? I would be manifesting the image of God. I would be like God in his likeness. See? So identity issues uh, can be huge. And a good verse for that is uh, John. Um, actually, that should say John 8. Chapter 8 and chapter 10 both have huge section, sections where Jesus is talking with Pharisees and other people. And he makes the point that uh, you are like your father. And of course he was talk, talking to them when they were trying to argue um, that uh, their father was Abraham. And he said, if you were like your father, you, if you were children of your father Abraham, you would be like him. You would act like him. You would think like him. But instead you're trying to kill me. So you really are like your father who was a killer from the beginning. People are supposed to emulate their father. And that's talking spiritually. If you're from Adam, you're going to emulate the father of the fall. And you're going to be a sinner in rebellion who doesn't want to be like God. Who wants to be independent. Adam went rogue in the garden. You realize that? He went rogue. He deviated from the plan of God and made an independent decision along with his wife and uh, decided to eat from the tree instead of uh, do, doing what God wanted him to do. And, uh, and so we have that in us. And until Jesus comes into our life uh, and we transfer back to being desiring growth into the image of God, then we get back the ability to image God and and uh, serve another father, a new father, our father, Abba Father. See? So, <clears throat> all counseling problems are relational problems. So, either with God or others, we have trouble getting along. Now, because God is uh, independent, self-existent, and uh, self-sufficient, uh, the interesting add-on to the picture is, is stretching out from just the word God, because God, uh, sometimes every time we use the word God, we're thinking of one person, don't you, too? You think you're God, and you're thinking of one person. But we've got to keep reminding ourselves that God is one being. He's one essence, but there's three persons in that one being. So we have God who is really a relationship of three people. And so within themselves, they have relationship and they have had eternal ex existence within themselves and, and self-sufficient and they depend upon each other. They're independent as a trinity. But within the Trinity, they're dependent upon each other for fellowship and communion and, and joy and uh, having the same mind and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they 
somehow together agreed, let us make man in our image. It wasn't like the, Jesus had the idea. And he said, uh, I think we, we ought to make uh, people and animals. And the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to have to think about that one. You know. No, they, they were in perfect harmony. And, uh, and so that reminds us that's an attribute of deity as part of this aseity thing. And so we're, we're not naturally like that since the fall. We were made to be like that. Because God, when God created Adam and Eve, he said, two shall be one. He gave them that koinonia, that unity, as a, as a gift in the beginning. But it's always split up by sin. Sin is the only thing that breaks it. Isaiah 59.2, the Lord uh, said, uh, your sins have separated you from me. Sin's the only thing. When you're on the outs with somebody, your own spouse, your own children, it's always sin that's caused it. Now, the first thing you do, if you believe that, the first thing you do is point to the other person's sin. But the fact is, Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye first. So sin's... Sins destroy relationships. That's been a big truth for me for years, especially in counseling. People aren't getting along. I know sin's at the root of it somewhere, and we're going to find it. And if you can be humble enough to see what you've done and confess your own sin, get your spouse to do that, you can build fellowship back again. You can restore a relationship, and then you can restore the joy of your relationship. So relationship problems... uh, we're not imaging the Trinity, and we're suffering for that. Uh, God has no problems within himself, and no problems with other people. Think about Jesus, the perfect human being, and uh, he had no problems. He did not need ever a counselor, right? He didn't have to seek out somebody and say, can you give me a little help with this? I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm struggling with this. Or, uh, I'm getting along with people pretty cool now, but me and God, me and my Father in Heaven, things aren't real. Imagine, no problems with anybody. Other people had problems, you see, and they had problems with Him, but He had no problems about how to think about them, what to say to them, what to do about it. You see what I mean? He had it all together. Now, that is a life to emulate. If if we were obviously like him, then we would never have problems. Other people might, but it wouldn't become our problem. We wouldn't know how to love. We'd know how to be gracious. We'd have merciful. We'd know how to make a whip if we needed to. And get him out. <laughs> and it would be right when we did it. You know, I'm just saying, he knew how to handle this world, sinful world. Because he was, Jesus had the spirit in him. And it was totally dependent upon his father. So counseling is really just helping people who have problems with either God or with other people. And they don't know what to do because of their own sin or their ignorance wisdom of God. It's relational problems. So counseling means that Jesus Christ is the center of what we do. And uh, helping people become more like Christ. I'll say about more of that in a couple minutes as we're getting close to ending here. A good verse for that relational problem, let us make man in our image. Genesis 1.26 Preeminence problems. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things. And uh, something else. <laughs> he is before all things, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminence problems. Um, 
I knew there was some more. Uh, I, I thought about this some, and I thought, you know, that's, that's a problem with me. And you know, by extension, that's a problem with everybody else. <laughs> and it's certainly a big problem for people to come for counseling. Jesus is not the preeminence of their life. It's not all about them. It's about Jesus. He has to, be, he has to pre- have preeminence in everything. And so, um, John, I think I have John. Nope. What did I do? Skipped it? No, that's, we used that already. Okay. Go away until I tell you. Um, nope, I should be there next. Okay, he should have preeminence in everything. Uh, his character, his demeanor, his stability, his eternal peace and joy. Um, and uh, Jesus, imagine Jesus, and that not, he had no problems with other people, and nothing that they did, no sin they committed against him, no talk about him behind his back or into his face, had any effect on his stability and his character, his peace and joy. He's not moved. He wasn't moved by any of that. See how he's reflecting the Trinitarian aseity of God? Not moved. He was walking through the earth, had it all together all the time, displaying independence that was centered in God based upon his dependence in the Trinity. Am I going too fast there? And see, in Christ, we can do that. We can do that with one another. We, in fact, churches are supposed to be manifestations of Trinitarian community. That's a, that's a pastor's dream. Which in reality is more often a nightmare. <laughs> Lastly, image imaging problems. You can see how these are tied together closely but slightly different nuances. Just like those three terms that we started with are close but, but it's beneficial to break them down. Uh, John 1, 1, 2, 3, Jesus said he, uh, he is the word and in him was life and the life was the light of man. I want you to think about this now. Uh, Jesus is the uh, in him was life, which was from the Trinitarian fellowship. And this life was the light of man. The life that Christ exhibited, which is this God-centered being, was light to the earth, which was in darkness. He came into his own, they received him not. And he came, you know. Now, somebody said... Uh, when Jesus has preeminence and his light shines forth, um, quote, I, I forget where I got the quote, but the fall made man not a planet revolving around the sun, but a sun around which everything else must revolve. <laughs> See what he said? Get it? All right. The fall, Adam and Eve, the fall, made man not a planet revolving around the sun like it should have been. Christ preeminent, you know, God preeminent. But instead the fall made man a sun about around which everything else should revolve. That's self-centeredness. Independence. I'm, it's all about me. I like the way that was said. In our rebellion, we become the focus of our world and expect God even to fit in as a servant to us. Those are pretty convicting words. That yet, we are created to image God, reflect what God is like, or mirror God. I like that term too. Uh, we're an image. We're a mirror. Like you look in a mirror, you see an image. You're not the real person. You're the mirror. The image is there, but you're not the real person. The person's in front of the mirror. 
We're called the image of God. So we're not God. But when people look at us, they should see what God looks like. Okay? So counseling and discipling people is a means that God uses to produce the image in us. That's really a good way to focus on what we do in counseling. And people that are effective counselors, biblical counselors, are people who are focused on bringing Christ out. Because bringing Christ out of that person by making sure they're saved, evangelism, you know, and all this stuff, is the heart of what we're doing. And it's the heart of the solution to their problems. Because the more they become like Christ, the less problems they're going to have. Okay. So we're giving Christ the preeminence in even our counseling. He's the focus. Say. So we die to ourselves and the counselees die to themselves and Christ begins to live big in them and through us. And the Bible is filled with verses like put on Christ. And this is A.W. This is Tozer. I think this is beautiful too. A sunbeam cut off from the sun vanishes. Okay, if, I, if I'm the image of God, am I supposed to be the image of God, the light, Jesus is the light, but he said, you're the light of the world. You know, if you get cut off from the source of it, you disappear. You're nothing. You go from, wow, to being nothing, or less than nothing. <laughs> Once again, you know. Our life comes directly from his life. And if we're cut off, we cease to be important at all. There's nothing. That's powerful to me. I, I love that quote. I just got it uh, about a couple weeks ago. We are the light that is totally dependent upon the sun for life and meeting. Okay, God is pleased. Some final quotes from Tozier. God is pleased by... Um, Oh, there's that quote I read to you. Sunbeam, cut off. God is pleased with our exaltation of his name, but he's not added to by it. Even if all of creation was wiped away, God would still be God. And he would still be glorious. <laughs> he is above all of our praise and blessing. A.W. Pink. God's independence assures us that God will overcome evil and death, and he has through his son Jesus Christ. God is independent, yet for our good, he chose to dwell with the finite. We get to know the God of the entire universe. God is independent of us, but he chooses to delight in us and allow us to bring him joy. Isn't that something to think about? He is solitary in his majesty, unique in his excellency, peerless in his perfections. He sustains all, but is himself independent of all. He gives to all, but is enriched by none. Such a God cannot be found out by searching. He can only be known as he is revealed to the heart by the Holy Spirit through the word. The CD. Um, no time for questions, but I'll hang around. I want to read to you a prayer that uh, a guy I found on the internet, a pastor, uh, he said after he taught a class on self-existence uh, to his Sunday school, he said, what should we do to apply this to our lives? And he said, well, one thing we can start with is prayer. And he said, it might go something like this. And I read that this, this prayer. I don't know if it, Put it in here or not? No. I read this prayer and I said, uh, this is good. Let me read it to you. Is it there? Yeah. Okay, let, let's follow me. Follow me. Father, thank you for this day that is a grace in and of itself. I confess that I am utterly dependent upon the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection to even be able to approach your throne as your son or daughter today. I also confess that I'm utterly dependent upon your Spirit's empowering grace to be able to do anything that is pleasing to you today. I cannot love my neighbors myself today without you loving them through me. I cannot love my wife or husband or whatever children as you love the church today without you loving her through me or submit to my husband or Christ. 
I cannot bring up my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord in a way that honors you unless you are bringing them up through me. I also cannot hear from you clearly in your word unless your Holy Spirit gives me understanding when I spend time in your word today. Father, I also confess that I'm a coward when it comes to sharing my faith. I cannot speak the gospel to the lost today without your making me bold and helping me make the gospel clear. Even then, I'm utterly dependent upon you to open the the eyes of those to whom I witness in order to see your glory and need for you. My co-workers don't need to see me today. They need to see you. I cannot show you to them without you. Father, truly, I can do nothing without you today, but with you, nothing is impossible. So I ask you to be with me this day, empower me to do your will, and I will act in faith that you are going to answer this prayer. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. It, it sets the tone, you know, that you know you are not God. You're dependent you, for your existence, for your sufficiency, for everything. That's what a seed is all about and how we understand it and know him better puts us in the right kind of a place that makes us divine. And uh, so, uh, any questions? Hang around. Uh, otherwise, let's pray. Father, um, we could almost pray this prayer again now. But we thank you that you're making it clear and clear to us how transcendent and awesome you are. And even though we cannot add a thing to your being, you can be pleased with us. We can bring you joy in some strange way that you don't even need, but you like. And we please you when we are like you. That's our destiny. Help us achieve it. Help us to be more like you, even as we get to know you more. In Christ's name, amen.